0: How are we this morning? Uh, <clears throat> last week, Corey Swanson uh, shared the message with you. He did a great job. Uh, I will be correcting one thing he said a little later as a part of my message, and uh, just give you a heads up about that. Some of you maybe know what I'm talking about. But I wasn't here last week. I was in Spokane, Washington, and I was speaking at a church called River's Edge. It's a church of very young people, a lot of college age and very young adults. There was very few children uh, as a part of it. It was interesting, a little different dynamic, and I was able to share a message with them, spend a couple of days with their leaders. Uh, just really enjoyed it. Uh, appreciate you know we were praying for you guys. I know that you were praying for us. It, it was a, it was a good thing for us. I would encourage you if you do get over to Spokane. Uh, we've got a couple churches over there that we are associated with, and. And uh, we'd be happy to get you the address for those guys, uh, and where they meet, and all those kind of things. But uh, just really enjoyed that time. I enjoyed connecting with more of our friends at Regions Beyond. Uh, I'm going to be continuing this week. We've been talking about <clears throat> uh, the Word of God and uh, all kinds of aspects of it, and different angles and perspectives. And and today I want to talk about the question: Is it enough? Is the Word of God enough for us? I think there's a lot of question out there of, um, is is it sufficient for me in life? Is it sufficient to guide me in my decisions? Is it sufficient to feed me spiritually? Is it uh, sufficient to help me grow? And I'm going to be starting with a verse that I've started every message with so far this year. Are you guys getting tired of this verse yet? This passage? No. Very good. You would never think that someone could preach so many messages starting out with the same passage, but it is a very foundational uh, passage in Scripture with some uh, a lot that we can unpack, and today I'm going to actually be dissecting this verse specifically uh, this morning for at least the first part of what I'm, what I'm talking about today, and, and we're going to read through it now. And how from childhood, this is the Apostle Paul, he wrote a bunch of the New Testament letters. Uh, most of you are familiar with who he is, and he's writing a letter to a young man named Timothy, or at least I think he was probably still young at this point, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. And we've talked in recent weeks about the emphasis of being acquainted with the sacred writings, that it's important for us, it's very valuable, it provides the foundation of everything we believe. If we didn't have the sacred writings, we would virtually have nothing except that we see in creation and those kind of things, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. Remember that? Pasa Grafe Theonustos? The word is breathed from God, it comes from Him. Just like He spoke things into creation, He spoke His word, it's powerful. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we're asking ourselves this question this morning is it enough? Is the word of God enough, or do we need additional things? Are there things outside the scripture we need to live a life of godliness or to follow God? Well, as we dissect this word, I think, you know, we were talking about the concept of interpretation in recent weeks, and uh, we had a little handout for you with some uh, typical guidelines on scriptural interpretation. And so we're just going to take a few minutes and see if uh, we're exegeting the scripture correctly or understanding really what it says. Can we dissect it and, and even bring ourselves to a deeper understanding of the Scripture? And I want to first talk about who was Timothy really? Who was this young man that Paul is writing this letter to? That has to do with the context. Timothy was, uh, I, I should have looked this up, I think it was Laodicea in the book of Acts. Maybe one of you could check me on that. Was it in, the, was it in Laodicea where Timothy was from? Paul came into one of the cities in uh, Asia Minor and he met this young man named Timothy. His mother was a Jew. His father was a Greek, which is, makes for an interesting dynamic in those days. And his grandmother also was a Jew. Lois and Eunice were their names. And, and they became Christians when they heard the gospel. And Timothy uh, is somebody that Paul took under his wing. And he became an apprentice, if you will, of Paul. And as Timothy grew in his ministry, Paul gave him significant responsibilities in the church. He had him go in different places, teaching in different places, sort of representing Paul to the churches that um, <clears throat> Paul was working with at the time. So that's who Timothy was, and that's who Paul is talking to. And we, we can understand that possibly that Timothy grew up learning the Scripture because he grew up in a Jewish home. His mother was Jewish. And so he would have been learning those sacred writings in the early years of his life. And of course, we know that at the time of Paul, there wasn't a New Testament writing. There wasn't, the collection of the New Testament was just starting to come together. The Gospels were just starting to be written. The story was just oral at that point, being told of what Jesus had done. And so when the New Testament talks about the Scripture, it's actually referring to the Old Testament. And so that challenges some of, the, some of the thinking. Is the Old Testament relevant? Is it applicable to my life? How is it applicable? Well, it was to the New Testament authors and the New Testament believers, and also then it would be to us. We are under the same covenant today. We see right away that Paul is encouraging Timothy because he was acquainted with the scriptures, and and then he begins to explain the benefit of this. And I think that causes us to think should we also then be acquainted with the sacred writings? Is it something that you and I should be familiarizing ourselves with? And we've been talking about this for weeks and weeks. And I hope that you've gotten stirred a little bit and motivated to read the Word of God, to be taking it in on a regular basis because it's very powerful and it's very important and we'll continue to look at some of that today. We should be acquainted with the sacred writings as well. Why? Why should I be acquainted with the sacred writings? Well, let's pick apart what Paul had to say about it. That it's profitable to make you wise for salvation. Wise for salvation. I remember when I was a kid, uh, I got a... uh, I think it was a student Bible. I can't remember now what it was. It was an NIV version, I think. And uh, previously, I'd only had an old King not old, but a King James, uh, original King James version and a little bit hard to read. And then I got this NIV and I remember reading the story and it just caught me so much. And it's the story where Solomon had made all, he was a king in the Old Testament, he made all these sacrifices to God and he had built the temple and, and uh, God appeared to him that night in a dream. And... I mean, it's almost like a genie in a bottle situation. God's like, ask me whatever you want. And of course, all of us were like, yes. Oh, I, I get my wish. I only get one wish. What's it going to be? What's it going to be? And Solomon does something that I just, uh, I can't, I don't think I really can express how much I respect what Solomon did. Solomon asked for wisdom. Of everything that Solomon could have asked for, He asked for wisdom to lead God's people. And I I still remember laying there on the floor of my bedroom reading that story. And it impacted me so much. And I remember reading the Proverbs then after that because, you know, there was a lot of stuff that was hard to understand for me in the Scripture. But Proverbs is pretty straightforward. And I remember reading that and reading about wisdom and how wisdom cries out, come to me, learn from me. There's so much. And then I read this passage and it says, That these sacred writings will make us wise and wise toward salvation, towards being saved, towards being reconciled with God. If you want to be wise, your source is right there in the sacred writings. They are able to make you wise for salvation, they're also profitable useful, beneficial, advantageous, all words, you know, when you, when you look at another language or a writing that's been written in another language and you're trying to translate it into English, sometimes you don't always have the right words, so there, there are other words that, the, that it gets translated to depending on the version of the Bible you read, but if you look at all of them, you can gain an understanding of what the idea of what's being said in a particular passage is, and this is very easy to do. It used to be you have to, had to know how to read Greek, Right? And then there were, things, there were other uh, books, big, thick books that you could never get through to help you uh, find words in the Greek and understand what they meant. But today, you can go on any number of websites and that fast, you can see what these original writings were in the Greek and you can see why some of the words were translated what they were. And You know, I don't think that it doesn't very often actually change the meaning that you would understand from a scripture, but oftentimes it will color it further. It will bring more dynamic to it. And in this case, we'll go through a few of these words profitable. It's useful. It's beneficial. It's advantageous. Why should I know the scripture? Why should I be familiar with the sacred writings? Because it's profitable, useful, beneficial, advantageous to me. Do you want an advantage? Read the Bible. Read the Scripture. Make it a part of your daily life. And again, all this while, asking in the back of our mind, is it enough? Is the sacred writings enough? Paul says that they're able to make you wise for salvation. He says it's profitable. Profitable for a number of things. What? Profitable for teaching. Instruction. Kind of this word is an instruction with an emphasis on morality or lifestyle. So there's teaching. When we think of teaching, we're thinking of what I'm doing right now. I'm standing in front of you and I'm giving you instruction about something. Or you think of a professor at a school and that would be an accurate representation of this word. What are the sacred writings useful for? They're useful for teaching. They're meant to be taught. They're meant to instruct us with an emphasis on lifestyle. So that's what that word teaching means. It goes on. Reproof. What is reproof? Why did this word get translated reproof? So the sacred writings are profitable, they're useful, they're advantageous in our teaching and instruction and also in reproof, proof by which something is proved or tested. So what do we do with the scripture when we're encountering something in life or some new ideas are coming in? What becomes the foundation that we look at to prove or reprove something that we're dealing with in life? It's the sacred writings. It's the word of God. It's his scripture. Reproof, kind of an examining. You hold it up in comparison to the scripture, and if it, and you know, we have some terms that we apply sometimes. We'll say something is biblical. What do we mean when we say something is biblical? It lines up with scripture. That yes, this is in agreement with the scripture. It's right and good. Then we have things that are abiblical, which would be. We don't know necessarily, you know, there's no information about uh, how much time you should limit your kids to on their iPhones in the Bible. It's kind of an, now there may be principles we can look at, but we don't see anything specific about iPads and iPhones in the Bible. Be, we'd have some biblical views about that. Then we would have anti-biblical views. These are views that contradict what the sacred writings teach us. And so when we're reproofing something, we're looking at it, we examine it in light of the Scripture, the Scripture becomes our advantage in reproving situations that we find ourselves in life. Why is it advantageous? To be familiar with the sacred writings, because when we encounter things in life, we reprove it, give it, I don't know how you'd say that, We, we examine it in light of the Scripture. And Paul teaches us to do so. It is the instruction given to us. Examine these things in light of Scripture. Correction. Oh, we hate this word. Correction, reform to the original or proper condition or to make suitable or straight. Some things are crooked and they need to be made straight. So when, when we make a mistake or, or, we, or we sin, sometimes the Scripture corrects us, alters our course. I find this word kind of interesting in light of what the definition of sin is. Sin itself being crooked, out of alignment, missing the mark of the nature of who God is. And yet correction is something that brings us back into alignment with who God is, God's ways, God's principles, all of that. So... What are the sacred writings useful for? What is Paul instructing us to use them for? For correction. When things get crooked or out of alignment, we want to get them back into their proper condition. And then ultimately, the whole idea of salvation, man being completely reconciled to God, we see that in the Word. And that's the trajectory that we're on. Correction, N4, training in righteousness. Chastening, kind of like raising children would be a word this would often be associated with, similar to teaching in many ways, but this is a correction by punishment or suffering, to prune of excess or falsity, or to cause to be more humble or restrained, to purify, refine, discipline, subdue. So again, we see another reason why it's advantageous to be familiar with the sacred writings of God. It becomes the foundation for our understanding of training, and not a very comfortable one it looks like sometimes. And we know that sometimes. Sometimes God humbles us, and sometimes he, he, you know, he will bring some difficulty in order to correct our direction. And sometimes He prunes things off, and He will refine us. The Bible talks about the refining, like gold, the refiner's fire, and we used to sing songs about it, right? It's this idea of a purification, discipline, ew, discipline. That was part of what I was talking about last week and spoke, yeah, excuse me, with the church there is they're looking at the spiritual disciplines as we see them in Jesus' life. Well, discipline's not very fun, but it is something that really helps us. If we want to get in good shape, we've got to be disciplined to go exercise or be on a diet. If we want to be disciplined in our spiritual lives, we take in the sacred writings in order that it will train us and lead us and guide us with wisdom and into righteousness and salvation in Christ Jesus. Man! Man! That every man may be equipped, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Man, mankind, this isn't just a gender specific term, it's mankind. Anthropos, that might sound like some other words you know. Anthropology, right? A lot of our words come from the Greek and then we understand. So, what is this about? This is that mankind, not just a specific individual, but that we, all of us, regardless of gender, would be uh, equipped for every good work complete, that the man of God may be complete, fitted, perfect, ready. Am I boring you yet? Why do we read these sacred writings? Why do we take them in? Because it's profitable, it's useful, it's advantageous for us that we would become complete. All right, this is what what I'm getting at today. Is the Bible enough? Yes, it is. The word of God that he has given us is sufficient to lead us in a life of godliness, a life of transformation, to lead us into relationship with God, to lead us into relationship with his spirit, to make us ready for whatever it is he has us to do. This word of God is sufficient. It is enough. Complete, fitted, perfect, ready, equipped for every good work. Also an idea of completeness here. Furnished, supplied, made suitable. Everything you need, every weapon in your arsenal, every tool in your tool bag, every, every word that you need, you can find the foundation for it in the sacred writings to lead us, to guide us in life. Okay, so why, why take the time to dissect all that? So it should encourage us. We know that the Word of God Activates faith when we hear when we based and it begins with the idea that when we hear the gospel when we hear that good news faith comes alive inside of us. If we didn't have the gospel we wouldn't if we didn't hear from God, you know we see it way back in Abraham he believed what God said to him and it was credited to him as righteousness. How did Abraham become righteous? He heard the word and he believed it, and that's true for us today. When we hear the word it activates things inside of us. Faith comes alive. Why should I believe that God heals? Why should I believe that God loves me? Why why should I believe that God cares about my minuscule circumstances compared to him running the universe? Because I learned that from his word. And my faith can be stirred to believe him. So when I'm asking myself the question, what should I believe about something? When I'm running into a situation in life, I don't know what to believe I can go to the Word because I know that the Word is sufficient to guide me towards God, towards God's thinking, towards God's perspective. When I'm asking myself a question, what should I believe, we go to the Word of God. How should I handle this situation? I don't know what to do in certain circumstances. Is there something on the heart of God about this kind of thing that I can find in the Scripture to lead me and guide me? What does God expect of me? Does God expect something of me beyond his word? But God, no, God has given us his word to equip us for everything he wants us to do. Everything that he has for us. Ultimately, it should boil down to this. What does God think about something? Fill in the blank. Whatever it is you're thinking about, whatever you're wrestling with, we should always ask ourselves the question first and foremost, what does God think about this? What is God's perspective on this issue? And how do I find resolution to that issue? I find it in the Scripture. I find it in His Word, what He's given to us. We always turn to God and His Word first when dealing with these matters. Psalm 119, verse 1, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Now I thought about this today uh, as I read this passage in Psalm, you know that I, well. When I got there and I was looking at it, I just see that the, that, uh, Psalm, uh, that Psalm, that Psalm one nineteen, just goes on and on and on and on. It's like a hundred and what is a hundred and seventy six verses? Yeah, one hundred and seventy six verses long. Over and over and over and over. I, I was tempted to read it to you today, but I thought you might uh, might hijack the service and cause me to stop. But 176 verses of go to the word, go to the law, delight in the law of God, delight in his word over and over and over and over and over this. I mean, David, I guess I'm assuming it was David, it may not have been, that wrote the psalm, really putting this emphasis on where do I go for my shelter, where do I go for my guidance, what do I delight in, It's in it's in the word that God has given him. And we, we can draw an example from that. How, how do we walk in a blameless way? We walk in the law of the Lord. Walk in what he's given us. Though, yeah, we, we don't behave perfectly. We know that. That's why we have Christ to, to cover our sin and our weakness. But as we bring ourselves more and more in alignment with God, we do, we do so in his word. Why should I believe that the scripture is sufficient? This, is, this actually isn't true for all of Christendom. There are branches of Christianity that do not agree completely with what I'm saying to you today. Um, so why should I believe that Scripture is sufficient? It claims to be in and of itself. Hopefully you see that in some of the stuff I present to you today. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, "...His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness." through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence through Christ. We've been given all things we need. Now we differ, uh, what am I referring to in that? I think probably a good story to tell you about illustrating and highlighting the issue of whether or not the scripture is enough, I think we can go back in time to the early 1500s at the time of the Reformation. And if if you don't know what the Reformation is, it, there was a man named Martin Luther, he was a... a Catholic priest, and he had some issues with what was going on in the church. And and so he one day he went to the church door, and he was trying to stir debate, and he nailed what was called the 95 Theses to the door of the church. And it was these 95 points that he was disagreeing with what the church was doing. And really one of the main instigators of this was that in the year 1517, um, the Pope offered indulgences to those who gave alms to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So, what happened, stick with me here, uh, is the church in those days would sell indulgences. Well, what that, does that mean? In the Catholic tradition, they believe in a place called purgatory, a place in between heaven and hell. And the really, really, really good people went to heaven, and the really, really, really bad people went to hell, and most of the rest of us went to purgatory. I may not do justice on this uh, from a Catholic point of view, but I just want to give you a basic idea, okay? And so in those days, if you gave additional money or you did additional works, it would lower the amount of time you would be in purgatory before you went to heaven. Because see, that was like a holding tank where you would be being refined, And that, you know, and so that we did, there was a thing called penance. Like if you sinned, you did certain things in order to get that forgiveness process going. And if you went to purgatory, uh, you could lower the amount of time you would be stuck there by paying indulgences. And that led to, there was ultimately, there ended up being a lot of abuses of that system. Uh, And that's what Martin Luther started talking about. There was a man uh, named Johann Tetzel. And if you're familiar with church history, he was kind of an instigator of of Luther. And what he did is he was going around selling these indulgences in order to raise money to rebuild this um, basilica. And uh, one of the things he was attributed and was saying is, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So every time he dropped a coin and it went ding, one of the souls in purgatory went to heaven. Okay. Well, some of you may never have, may have never even heard of purgatory, or or what that is, or why it's there. Well, uh, Martin Luther started to draw attention to these issues because, again, think about where this is in history. The printing press has now on the scene. The Word of God is. Uh, I, I think uh, Corey mentioned it last week. He me- mentioned um, the Tyndale Bible, didn't he? And uh, you know, that, there was an original translation of that, and and. Uh, Eventually, the King James Version came out later, but the Scripture was starting to become a little more available, I think, you know, and, and Martin Luther had gotten access to some of the transcripts in Germany where he was from, and so he started to read the Bible and he started to say, this isn't what the Word of God says. This isn't what it teaches. Where do we get the premise to have these additional teachings about the kingdom of God, and so he, he nails his 95 theses to the door. He starts challenging these things, and ultimately it led to what's called the Protestant Reformation. The, the Protestant churches, along with, quite, actually there was quite a few different branches that broke off from Catholicism at that time, and, um, but Martin Luther was sort of the instigator of all that, and that's where uh, the Lutheran church began, but a saying developed at that point in time called sola scriptura, the Bible alone. Because what had ended up happening is there were other documents and other things that became of equal power as the word of God. That God had spoken these things, but because of the apostolic succession that they had believed that the Pope was, his word was good too. And the traditions of the church were good. And so there were additional things that were put on par with uh, the Word of God. So therefore, uh, if we found something in church tradition, it would be as justifiable as something that we find in the Scripture. And that isn't something that we believe today. And so that's why this whole idea of, is the Word of God enough? Well, that that's that's what we believe and most like us would believe. There are branches that don't. You've got Catholicism, Mormonism has the Book of Mormon, which is put on par with the Scripture, and so that informs their beliefs to the same degree that the Bible informs ours. And there are others um, that, that do so as well. And so it'd be something that we simply disagree with. So is the Word of God, you know, when we read the Word, just like Martin Luther did, he said, wait, this is, according to the Word of God, this is sufficient. This is what should guide us and lead us in our doctrine. There shouldn't be anything put before what God himself has said, what God has given us. And so that's where this this becomes so important and valuable. Now, we can look at ancient things like the Catholic Church in the 1500s or, or whatever, but we have to consider for ourselves today, why does it matter? Because what am I allowing to be on par with the Word of God? What am I allowing to be equal with God's Word in my life? What voices am I listening to? What understanding am I taking in? What philosophies? What rationalism, what humanism, all these things, am I putting them on equal value with what I see in the scripture? And, we, and it's, always, it's a wrestling match. It can be really tough to do, but we need to keep that in order when we're reading the scripture. And by the way, the scripture is not authoritative to all theologians. You can go to Harvard and get a theology degree, you don't have to be a Christian to be a theologian. So we have to be careful with the things that we study and the things that we read. Are these people that believe that God is really God and that Jesus was really Jesus? And the things we read in the Scripture. And so we have to to be cautious about those things because we believe that the Word of God is sufficient. But many do not. All right. so if that's true, if, if the Bible is... Sufficient for me if it's what I need to lead me into godliness. Now, I'd imagine in the back of some of your minds, you're going, What do you mean the Bible is all I need? What about prayer? What about the Holy Spirit? What about attending church and all those things? All of those ideas come from the Word, they don't come from someplace else. They come from the Word of God. We wouldn't have them if we didn't have the Word, or at least we wouldn't know about them. That's why the Word of God becomes the foundation for. What we believe, even when it comes to the things of the Spirit, the things of the Spirit are subject to the Word of God, first and foremost, and they submit to the Word of God. In fact, when we're given instruction on how to judge prophecy and those kind of things, we look at the Scripture. And so we, it becomes the foundational thing. In fact, Jesus Himself submitted Himself to His own Word. We looked at the story in Luke chapter 4 where he's dealing with his adversaries. Satan is tempting Jesus. What does he do? He takes the word of God and he wields it in such a way that he ultimately uh, wins the battle, I guess, so to speak. He resists the temptation. Now, I found it interesting thinking about this. Jesus used his own, really, in a sense, his own word as authoritative to deal with Satan. He submitted himself to what the written word was in order to accomplish what needed to be accomplished. That jumped out at me. Because Jesus, in his own authority, without the Scripture, theoretically, I think, could have rebuked Satan and dealt with Satan in that situation. But in demonstrating to humanity how to live, what did he rely on? The Scripture. He goes back to the words of the Old Testament and he uses them to rebuke Satan. And to deal with the temptation, which is a great demonstration to you and I about if God Himself holds His word as authoritative. Interesting thought. Perhaps we should consider doing so as well. But He answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. What's He referring to when Jesus says this to Satan? Referring, we talked about this, I think, a few weeks ago. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And he humbled you. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting this passage. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What is the sustenance for life for mankind? It is the word of God. And even when he was physically hungry, Jesus himself, he relied first and foremost on the word of God. I don't think it's any coincidence that the Bible often uses that um, analogy of hunger. I even found myself wondering if God designed us to get hungry to then illustrate to us how we should feel about him and how we should feel about his word. So if my belly is empty, which, you know, by about 11 o'clock today, it's going to be talking to me, saying, let's wrap this up and go have lunch. I get hungry, I need something, I have to nourish my body in order to keep going, otherwise I will die. And the Bible itself uses this analogy about our relationship with God and about His Word. His Word nourishes us. It gives us the fuel we need to get where we need to go in life. But if we're filling ourselves up on other things, which we do, that's kind of the nature of idolatry putting other things before God, I'm going to fill myself with other things to get me where I need to go, but I'm going to be left wanting because of that. I don't think it's any coincidence that in Genesis chapter 3, and when we see this story, yes, I'm going back to Genesis chapter 3 again. Again, again, why do I do that? I'm practicing what I told you a few weeks ago. When when we're reading the scripture and we're looking at context, we also look at themes and we go, where did this idea start? Where did it begin? And we find so much of that in Genesis chapter 3. So much of what sets the stage for mankind today. And it's interesting that the first sin had to do with eating. You ever think about that? Yeah, I don't think it's a sin to eat chocolate cake, just so you know, stuff like that. I think what Corey, this is where, you know, Corey's an elder in our church. Corey Swanson who preached last week, and um, I listened to Corey's message, and it, it was outstanding, but, you know, when an elder does something wrong doctrinally, you need to confront them publicly, and Corey did something out of line last week. He suggested the possibility that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a pineapple tree last week, and I think that's utterly ridiculous, because pineapple is awesome, and it belongs on pizza. Okay, so Corey, wherever you are in the world, line up. But I don't think it really is a coincidence that this was an intake. I don't want you to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Oh, sorry, I got to do this. I I was thinking about what fruit I think the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was. I think it was a tomato tree. There are no tomato trees today. I think it's a tomato tree, not because I don't like tomatoes, but I mean, those little, those little fruits are um, faking being a vegetable. I just think that's sinister and evil in every way, so clearly, that's my theory. Anyway, okay, I'm moving on. Plus, there's no pineapple trees, God must have cursed them, and now they're just vines that have to crawl across the ground. I don't think it's a coincidence that that you know this idea that I don't want you to take in the knowledge of good and evil as your way to be godly. Could that be what that means? Was it really a tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What are you taking in? What are you relying on for your sustenance? Is it just knowledge See, we read the Word of God, not just that it would puff our heads up with information, but that the power of the Word would transform us and lead us into relationship with God Himself. That's the power of the Word of God. It brings that transformation. And of course, we see, how did this all start? And what's been going on since the beginning of time? Did God actually say, you should not eat eat from this tree? Did He really say that? Is that really what he meant? Because I'm telling you, I'm speaking kind of like Satan here, I'm telling you that he didn't really mean what he said. He actually wants you to go a little further with this and make it mean something it doesn't say and eat of this fruit. Because you'll be more like him if you do. It's the oldest trick in the book, literally. The oldest trick in the book. Did God really say? Well, when I'm confronted with all kinds of circumstances in life, I don't, if I don't know what the Scripture teaches, if I don't glean what the heart of God is from His Word, I don't know how to answer that question when I'm confronted with it. Did God really say He loves you, J.R.? I mean, come on, Jr. think of your whole life and all of the dumb things you've done. Did God really forgive you? Does God really care about your life? Is God really leading you into his destiny for you? Did God actually say, and I can hopefully with confidence go to his word and say, yes, he did actually say that he loves me. He did actually say that he has forgiveness for me. He did actually say he has grace for me and many, many, many other things. How do I navigate life if I can't answer that question? Did God actually say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Are we hungering and thirsting? Is there an appetite in us for more than just bread, but a hunger for God? A hunger to be closer, a hunger to be in alignment, a hunger to be in relationship with Him? Is our appetite stirred, or is it just full of other stuff where we don't have cravings for God anymore? There's a discipline component to this, and it's, it's not very fun. Sometimes we have to get up early to read the Word of God if we want time. It can be difficult, but it's what we want to do, and it's who we want to be if we hunger. Are you hungry? That's what I want you to. It is enough. The Scripture is enough. Are you hungry for that? Because from that, everything else flows. It's what God has spoken for all people, for all time. It resonates through the ages, and it satisfies man, that man may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's in his word. I'm going to quickly go through just a couple passages here. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. he will be blessed in his doing. Looking into God, looking into what he has said, looking into the parameters of the covenant that he's given us. We're in the same covenant that was initiated at his death and Pentecost today. The same covenant is in place, not beyond. Let's go to the next passage. If you put these things before others, again, Paul's writing to Timothy. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Paul's doctrine was good doctrine. And the words of Scripture activate our faith. Have nothing to do with irrelevant, irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. What are we instructed to do? Train ourselves for godliness. How do we do that? He instructed us in the passage earlier through the word. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. There's an important little nugget right there. For the present life too, not just the life to come. Did God really say that he has blessings for you even in this life? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Did God really say? Our infusion of the scripture opens us up to many things. It gives a platform for many things that we enjoy in our relationship with God. We get those things from the Word, things like His Spirit. We we get those concepts and ideas, and our faith becomes activated when we study it and we learn. And God speaks to us through His Word. Our friend Kendrick in North Carolina, uh, who leads the church that our friend Clem Ferris is at, um, some of you may know Kendrick. He's spoken here in the past. One of his values is enjoying God. Enjoy God. How do I enjoy God? How do I get these? How do I come to this place of understanding that I even can enjoy God? it's in his word. Read it. What has he said? How do I know that that's true? Has God said in some way that we can enjoy him? You have to check out his word. So we're going through it and we read it and we say, wow, my sins are forgiven. My conscience can be clear. Wow, because I am forgiven, death can't contain me anymore. I'm not condemned to death because of that forgiveness. Wow, because of that forgiveness, I have a restored relationship with my Maker. What does that relationship look like? Wow, God's Spirit can empower me and lead me and guide me and help me affect the lives of others. All of these things that we have from God, we have from His Word. And our confidence can be strong because of the Word and what God has spoken. As we realize this, I hope that we get more and more hungry for God and for His Word. He has given it to us for that reason. We don't, need to go, we don't need to go find something else. We don't need to have additional Bible. God has provided something sufficient to us. Every time He initiated a covenant in the Old Testament, we see the parameters of those co- the covenant. And in the New Covenant, we see the parameters of that all within the written Word. All that we have for the context of this New Testament relationship with God is within His Word. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, I'll wrap up with this. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. He's talking about a Sabbath rest and how Christ is is the Sabbath ultimately. He's the rest that we ultimately end up in in life. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him of whom we must give account. This is a powerful scripture that that I hope uh, just sears into your mind about the word of God is not a dusty old book that belongs on a shelf or in a box somewhere. It isn't even really about the book. It's the word of God. It's what God has said. It's timeless. It's alive. It's active. It will discern your thoughts. It will expose your heart. And we're so grateful that within that we find the grace to run to God in that moment. That it says in Hebrews that we can go to God in his throne room in confidence. So we can open those doors and go right before the master of all things and be reconciled to Him and build relationship with Him in this, because of this powerful thing He has spoken and done in the world. Would you stand? I hope you're motivated to read the Word, to absorb it, to pray about it, To invite God into your process as you learn and grow in relationship with him. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your design. God, that you gave us a word that can lead us and guide us in every way. Lord, that you give us all the foundational principles we need to live a life of godliness, to pursue you, to relate to you, to serve one another. Father, I pray that each one would be stirred in their appetite, Lord an appetite for you, an appetite for your word, a hunger and a thirsting for righteousness, a desire to grow and become mature. And that, God, we would open up that alive and active word and let it examine us, let it go into us, let it transform us. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.